Our scripture text this morning is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. In a moment, I'm actually just going to read uh, verse 2 and then verses 6 through 7, uh, since we're really going to be focusing on verse 6 together this morning, but you have the broader context there available for you. And this is a fitting passage, as I mentioned earlier, on the Sunday leading up to Christmas, because it's a passage about the identity of the promised Messiah, the baby to be born in a manger that we read about a moment ago. And as we turn our attention to God's word, I hope that we won't just see that this was a passage that promised hope and comfort to a people that lived long ago, but offers hope and comfort to us even in the midst of our dark lives today. So let's turn now to Isaiah chapter 9, and I'm going to read verse 2, and then verses 6 and 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come now and show us Jesus. There's no other hope or comfort or source of strength that can really meet us in our need than our Lord Jesus. So show him to us now as we consider your word together. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The Sawi people were a people group that lived in Papua New Guinea. And in the middle of the 20th century, they were one of those people groups around the world that had never heard the gospel. That was the worst thing about their situation. And a close second is that they were cannibals. They were a people that were often at war with one another, in fact, more often at war than they were at peace. Tribe would fight against tribe, clan against clan, family against family, and it would have been normal in their culture for the victors to kill and finally to eat those whom they had conquered. And they had a unique uh, cultural tradition that actually set them apart from other cannibalistic people groups around the world, and that was that the Sawi worshipped treachery. They honored and revered and praised treason and deceit and betrayal. Uh, metaphorically speaking, the purple hearts in this culture would not have been given to those who demonstrated self-sacrifice or courage, but to those who allied themselves with one people group and then the next day stabbed them in the back. It was something that they celebrated. They were a people that dwelled in deep darkness, but on them a light would shine. 
When the prophet Isaiah first delivered this oracle from the Lord, this prophecy to his people Israel, they were living in a not-too-different situation. Now, they weren't living among a cannibalistic people, but the great Assyrian Empire was knocking on their door. Up to this point in history, Assyria was both the greatest empire, the most powerful military that the world had ever seen, and they were also one of the most brutal towards their enemies. To give you just one example, you may have heard that the Romans eventually, 700-odd years from when Isaiah was delivering his message, they would perfect crucifixion as a means of torture and execution, but crucifixion finds its origin among the Assyrians. I know that this is graphic, but they would drop the, the leaders of their enemies onto sharp poles and impale them and march them around as their trophies of war. And this was the empire knocking on Israel's door when Isaiah gave this message to God's people. They were living in a time of deep darkness. Now, I'm not sure how you feel about our cultural moment today. The reality is we're not surrounded by cannibals, and we don't have uh, the Assyrian Empire knocking on our door. Uh, but if you read the news this morning or last night, there, there were probably plenty of reasons to discourage you. We, too, are a people who need to hear this message from Isaiah, a message that offers us hope and comfort and strength and which centers on one person, and particularly here in Isaiah, it centers on a child. Later on in his prophecy, this same person would be described as a man of sorrows, a man who has grown to maturity and who's pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, but here, he's a child. And what I want to draw our attention to this morning, to offer us hope and comfort in the middle of our own dark and war-torn lives, are these four names that the Lord has revealed to his people about this promised Messiah, our Lord Jesus. And the first name which is given to him is Wonderful Counselor. Now, when we hear that name in our uh, therapeutic day and age, I think we're liable to misunderstanding. And I want to say on the front end, uh, that everything I'm about to say is not taking a dig at uh, seeing a therapist or a counselor. I think that can be a great idea for a lot of people. But in our therapeutic day and age, we can read words like Jesus is our wonderful counselor and misunderstand them because here Jesus is not being presented as a therapist or even a wise pastor who can help us to live lives uh, that are flourishing. No, when, when the Old Testament uses the language of a counselor, it's referring to someone who comes alongside a king and offers them wisdom, particularly in times of war or in other times of national crisis. So it'd be pretty natural in our day and age to maybe think of Jesus as our therapist, to approach him, to help us to feel better, and... That's not altogether wrong. Jesus certainly offers us a greater comfort than anyone else possibly could. But we need to see that Jesus is being presented here as the very wisdom of God 
who particularly meets us in our needs in the times of war. And you might not think of your life as being caught up in warfare. Uh, Occasionally, if we turn on the news or if something hard happens to us even closer to home, we might be discouraged, but we have so many distractions at our fingertips. We're discouraged for a moment, but then we get a text message from a family member, or we scroll on Instagram, or we turn on Netflix, or uh, check the stock market, whatever it might be for you. It's so easy to live in a distracted way in our world that we miss that the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis 3.15 to the final chapters of Revelation, paints a picture that God's people are caught up in a cosmic warfare. That as soon as you became a Christian, whether you knew it or not, you enlisted yourself in the army of King Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that God is preparing to send you on a crusade to the Holy Land, but it means that we as Christians are at war. I wonder if you think often about or live your life in light of the reality that there are ideas and systems and individuals that are wholeheartedly opposed to God and his people. You might answer that question, yes, and yet it's so easy to think of those people as out there and not actually impacting the way we view ourselves or understand our world. And this is the reality that the Bible often describes as the world, not meaning the good creation that God has made, but those forces and people in the world that are genuinely opposed to God, that these people are influencing us as Christians. I wonder if we actually live our lives often in light of what John Owen said so well, that if you are not killing your sin, your sin will be killing you. And I wonder if day to day, week to week, we actually live in light of the reality that there is a real personal, spiritual enemy of your soul, that his name is Satan and his objective is your eternal harm. In other words, the Bible teaches that we have enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And if we believe that there's this kind of cosmic warfare that we are caught up in, then I think we will feel our need for the counsel that Jesus offers, far more than we'll feel our need to see what our favorite Instagram influencer said this week. Not saying that's wrong. But there there are messages in this world, there are pieces of counsel that we receive that we, if we're honest, get a whole lot more excited about, uh, that these things are forming us more than the counsel that Jesus offers us in his word. And what we need to see is is what many commentators and translators of this passage have pointed out, that wonderful counselor is, is a great way to put it, but the Hebrew could almost literally be translated that Jesus is a wonder of a counselor. He's a wonder of a counselor. That word wonder is used in the Bible to refer to God's great saving acts in history. Maybe the the pinnacle of which in the Old Testament was the Exodus event, 
when God poured out his wrath on the Egyptians to demonstrate his power over the Egyptian pantheon and the ten plagues, and when he led his people across dry ground when he parted the Red Sea. That's the kind of wonder that we're talking about that our Lord Jesus is being described as here. He is a wonder of a counselor. And I wonder, uh, no pun intended, when was the last time we felt astounded by something? Just yesterday, our daughter Ellis uh, started saying ba, ba, ba consistently for the first time, and it, it was pretty amazing. I mean, my wife and I were, were pretty astounded at this. She might as well have been reciting Homer or Shakespeare or something. But I don't know the last time you were astounded by something you saw or heard. We've all had this experience at some point in our lives. What we need to see is that we ought to be astounded by the wisdom of Jesus. We ought to come to his teaching in the Gospels and feel a little bit like the scribes and the Pharisees, who are often described as being confounded by the wisdom of Jesus. If we're really in wartime, as God's word teaches, then we should want to, expect to, assume that day after day we're running with urgency to the wisdom that Jesus offers us. So maybe a a practical takeaway for some of us this Christmas season is to rededicate ourselves to sitting under the teaching of Jesus in all the scriptures, but maybe start with one of the gospels and see that here is a wonder of a counselor who can astound you. The second name that's given to Christ in our passage is mighty God. And the Hebrew phrase here uh, certainly indicates that this promised child would be God himself, but the language is a little more particular than that. It carries with it the connotation of one of the most common descriptions of God in the Old Testament, but sadly that is often overlooked or ignored in our culture, and that is the description of God as a divine warrior. Time and again, God is described in the Bible as the divine warrior who fights on behalf of his people. And if we're honest, if we slow down enough to really reflect on what that means, I think many of us don't really find that message about God to be good news. We're pretty comfortable with the meek and mild child of Christmas, as we should be. Uh, It's amazing good news that our God would humble himself to become a small child, and we certainly ought to be remembering that this time of year. But I think we find it more difficult to find comfort in the picture of Jesus at the end of Revelation, the divine warrior who's coming from heaven with a sword coming out of his mouth to carry out God's vengeance on his enemies. So maybe at Christmas time. Uh, it's appropriate for us to be confronted with the scriptures, to, to realize that Jesus doesn't fit into any of the neat boxes that we often want to create for him. Uh, we, we might love Jesus as the lamb, but we struggle to love him as a lion. And this is a general lesson for us when we come to God's word. We come to it to read it and to learn, but we also come to it for it to read us. It's really easy for, for every human being, for every Christian in this room, if you identify as a follower of Jesus, to interpret what God says about himself through the lens of our feelings about him, rather than to let our feelings about him be interpreted 
by what God says about himself. But really, I hope the, the specific takeaway for us here that we need to be challenged by is that it is actually good news that the child of Christmas is also a divine warrior. The doctrine of hell is not an easy pill to swallow. I believe the Bible teaches it clearly, so we can't ignore it, uh, we can't dance around it, and yet I also believe that it's fitting for Christians that often when we speak about it with loved ones, that we should speak about it with tears in our eyes. It's a heavy reality. But what we need to see is that it is good news that Jesus is the divine warrior who one day is going to come back and set all wrongs right. Think for a moment about some of the most hateful things in the world. Mothers killing their children. Human trafficking. One people group hating or oppressing another people group because of where they're from or how much money they have or what they look like. You know, in 2020, there were more deaths in the United States due to drug overdose than had ever been recorded in a 12-month period in our nation's history. And one author described these deaths as deaths of despair. And again, if we, if we look around at our dark world, sometimes that's on a global scale and something far away, sometimes it's right at home. If we look around at our dark world, there are a lot of reasons that might tempt us to despair. But it's in that dark situation that we can hear the message about a divine warrior as good news. One day, everything that is hateful, everything that is vile, everything that is opposed to God or his glory or our joy in him will burn in hell forever. It's good news that our Lord Jesus has come to make a way for us to have refuge in him. He didn't come first as a divine warrior, and that is amazing. Everyone who calls on his name will be saved. But it's also good news that one day he's coming again, and he will set all wrongs right. The child of Christmas came to be a wonder of a counselor, to be our mighty God, our divine warrior. He also came to be our everlasting father. We uh, confessed a creed earlier in the service, the Apostles' Creed, that teaches uh, according to the uniform witness of the scriptures and uh, what the church has confessed through the ages, that there is one God, and that this one God eternally subsists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you've been around the church for a while, this isn't going to be a brand, new, a brand new message to you, although it is a mystery. But you might be confused then when you come to a passage about God the Son, about the promised Lord Jesus, to hear him described as everlasting Father. Uh, but there's good news. Uh, the prophet Isaiah was not a heretic. Uh, we can all take a breath for a moment. Because uh, the Hebrew word for father can certainly refer to a biological male parent, but it can also refer to other sources of authority, whether that's a, a distant male uh, ancestor or 
as I think is the case here in our passage, it can refer to a king. And if we keep reading past verse 6, we see that that's the clear context, that this promised child is being presented as one who would sit on the throne of his father David. So there's no contradiction here. Uh, We could basically take out the word father and, and put in the word king, and it would make sense. But Isaiah, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, chose the word father for a reason. This promised Messiah would be our everlasting father. Because he wouldn't just be any kind of king, but a king who always, always exercises his authority for our good, just like a good father does. Caring for us, providing for us, guarding us. There are stories about Alexander the Great commanding soldiers in his own army to jump off a cliff to their deaths. And as the story goes, the soldiers would hear the command and they would jump right away without hesitation because they knew the authority of this man. And that provides a helpful contrast for our Lord Jesus who, as our everlasting father, our good king, never commands us to do something that would ultimately harm us. And we have proof of that, and that when he came, he didn't command us to jump to our deaths, but he died in our place. That's the kind of king that he is. He doesn't demonstrate his power by crushing people. He demonstrates his power by being crushed in our place. And my my guess is this is a message that some of you have heard before, and yet I also assume if you're anything like me, It's hard to actually believe that it's true, to believe that Jesus' authority in our lives is a good thing. When I came out to my car this morning, my windshield was iced over. Um, And now I'm from South Florida, so I'm I'm just guessing here. But I I believe if I turned the windshield wipers on right away, uh, it would not have gone well. I could have damaged the windshield wipers, and it certainly wouldn't have done anything to the ice. And I think often we approach our Christian lives, our lives of obedience to Jesus like that. We don't take the time to let our hearts be thawed by the goodness of Jesus' authority toward us. And we just start trying to work hard, chipping away at the ice right away. We need to slow down and see that his authority is good. And if it's good, then it means that we can come to him to rescue us from the miseries of living life as we see fit. The people of Israel in Isaiah's day were tempted to throw off the kingship of God. And part of what would come with the Assyrian army knocking on their door and and after that, Babylon, as it came to the people of Judah, as God was exercising his fatherly discipline on his people. But what we need to see is that Jesus' good authority can rescue us from our modern quest for self-invention. I think we genuinely believe, if we're listening to any of the many voices in our culture that speak this, and we all are in one way or another, we believe that my identity is wrapped up in my personal choice instead of defining ourselves in relation to Jesus. What I choose and what I want is not the most important thing about me, but what Jesus has chosen for me to die in my place, to rise in my place, to ascend to the Father in my place. We believe and we often act as if 
the way to find personal fulfillment is to do the thing that gratifies us in the short term. When what we need to see is that Jesus has determined the best way for us to find joy in him, and that is the life of obedience. But the reason we need to sit with Jesus's good authority more often than we do is because it often feels like obeying Jesus is a kind of death. And what I want to uh, remind us all of is before we turn to our last name is what C.S. Lewis once said. He said that we don't know more resurrections in our lives because of all the deaths we refuse to die. Jesus is our everlasting father, our good king, and that means we can trust him and obey him even when doing that feels like death to us. Lastly, Jesus is our prince of peace. That word peace is the familiar Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. And verse 7 of our passage uses that word again. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. That's an amazing statement. In Isaiah's day, any spread of any earthly kingdom inevitably meant the spread of war, not peace. But when the kingdom of Jesus spreads, it's not the spread of war, it's the spread of peace. And it's clear in Isaiah and in other parts of the Bible that this shalom has all sorts of spillover effects in all of our lives. It includes even the the promise of a transformed humanity, a transformed society. So it's not just or merely a spiritual thing. And yet, I think we miss something important if we hear about the peace that is promised and our minds jump to peace on a horizontal level. Because there's something worse than being at war with Assyria. What is the worst position you could possibly be in? It would be for you to be at war with the mighty God, with the divine warrior of Israel, with the holy, holy, holy God. And if you're here today and you're exploring Christianity, I I hope you hear from us that the core message of the Bible, the core message of the Christian faith is good news for sinners. And yet we can't comprehend or understand that message if we don't hear the bad news first. And that is that because of our sin, because of our actions of rebellion against God, we are naturally God's enemies. The Sawi people were a people who lived in deep darkness, but on them a light would shine. God would send missionaries to the Sawi people in 1962. Uh, Their names were Don and Carol Richardson. Uh, You can read more about their story in a book that they've written. And when they came to the Sawi people, you can understand that there were serious challenges that they would face. Uh, The first challenge was a linguistic or language challenge. Here was a relatively isolated tribe, and they had no way of communicating with this people. So that was a, a barrier they had to overcome. But maybe the greater challenge that they faced was a cultural one. Even after they were able to communicate with the Sawi, they struggled to find a way to connect the, the truths of God's word with this culture that was bound up in so much darkness. But one day they heard about a custom of the Sawi people. 
a custom that was called the peace child. What would happen would be a, a one chieftain who had some kind of conflict with another chieftain and their tribes were at war with one another, he would send one of his own newborn sons to the other chieftain to be raised as a child of that tribe, as one of their own, and that child would be protected and nourished and cared for. And the the other chieftain, the second one, would in return send one of his own newborn sons to be raised among his own natural enemies. And this peace child, this sacred custom was stronger than even the the natural state of affairs of of the Sawi people constantly being at war with one another. It It was a peace that was inviolable. So you can imagine Don and Carol, the excitement that they would have felt when they heard about this custom. Finally, they had a way to connect the good news about Jesus with this people. If you're here today, whether you have grown up in the church or not, but if you reflect on the state of your heart and if you become aware that you don't really know Jesus, you are an enemy of God. You might be a very nice person and I'd probably enjoy hanging out with you and learning a lot from you, but that is what God's word says. But God has sent his peace child to us. But unlike the peace child of the Sawi, he wouldn't be protected and cared for among his enemies. Our Lord Jesus, the Prince of Peace, would go to a cross and would be nailed there in our place so that we could have shalom. We could have true flourishing with God and all his people. The peace that Jesus, our peace child, came to bring is stronger than all of our natural hostilities with God and with one another. So if you don't know Jesus yet, I urge you to trust in him and you will find yourself no longer to be an enemy of God, but to be his beloved son or daughter. If you're a Christian today, you're already at peace with God. That's, that's great news. It's amazing. And maybe one uh, big takeaway as we wrap up is as people of this king, this promised child, we ought to be like him. We ought to be a people of wonderful counsel who can show people the words of life as they're contained in God's word. We ought to be a people that is passionate for justice like our mighty God. We ought to be a people that exercises our power and authority for the good of other people just like our everlasting father. And we ought to be a people of peace that promote shalom in all of our relationships. But again, we need to remember the way we get there is not trying harder or pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but it's seeing that our wonder of a counselor became speechless when he came as a small child on Christmas Day. Our mighty God did not come first to pour out God's wrath on his enemies, but to take that wrath for us so that we could have refuge in him. Our everlasting father, the truly good king, didn't come and sit on a golden throne, but he was enthroned on a tree in our place. And our prince of peace came to be cut off, to to become an enemy 
treated as an enemy of the Father so that we could become God's child. That is the good news at the heart of Christmas. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came. You are our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, and our Prince of Peace. I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who finds themselves to be your natural enemy, that they would flee to you, and that they would trust in you, and that they would experience the goodness of becoming a child of God, even today. And God, I pray for those of us that do know you, that even in the midst of our darkness, even in the midst of our warfare, that we would be comforted by who you are as we look back to your first coming on Christmas Day and as we long together for the day when you'll come again and make all things new. We pray this in your name. Amen.